Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 190. Jason Lingren is with me as always. And uh, by special request, we have Dave Marsh from the UK who has been doing astounding work with a simple DSLR camera on the moon, on the curvature or supposed curvature of our world. Uh, And I'll put it on the record here and now. Um, When I went to upgrade my equipment back when I was in San Diego, a lot of people helped me do that. I'm going to pay it forward here with Dave Marsh. Um, I'm looking to sponsor him to upgrade to an EOS RA model camera that's coming out. It's 50 megapixels. To put that in context, the best camera that I used was 36 megapixels, which was a Nikon at the time. He's also going to get a long thrower, what many would call a telephoto lens and possibly a doubler. Um, but his work is critically important, and he's doing it, man. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a fine good morning it is for us. All right. I'm reasonably sure we don't have anything for the. Oh, I, I heard. Is this true, by the way? Did Matt Lamming get booted off Facebook again? Oh, I have not heard that yet, but I can find that out quickly enough. Yeah, someone just posted, uh, you know, I, I don't post to YouTube anymore. What's the point? Uh, you don't know if it's going to be there in the morning, but I did see a comment. Someone claimed his Facebook channel had been removed. Uh, I shot a, a email off to Rose because I figured she'd be tracking that kind of thing. Uh, but if we find out that's true, we'll probably have to address it because that would classify as a modern day book burning, I would estimate. I agree totally. Um, anyhow, anything else? No. All right, let's get Dave in here. Welcome, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me, Crow. All the way from the UK, man. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, you know, you and I hooked up about a year ago, maybe maybe longer. Um, and it was before. You know, Rose keeps keeps us on track. This has gotten so so much to keep track of here. Uh, Rose does the scheduling now, and I dropped the ball back then, and I apologize for that. But here we are now. Uh, are you ready to talk some moon? Yes, I am. It, like I say, uh, that was on the back of uh, you being on the Sun and Moon group. And I think Karen showed you some of my work and you was very interested in what I was uh, doing at the time. And we, we got together. And like you say, you know, what I mean, we've, we've all got busy schedules. Like I say, I've got a full time job. I've got a, a five year old son. And I know Rose wasn't uh, doing all your uh, bookings then. So but uh, now we're, we're finally after probably about a year, we're here. Yeah, you know what tends to happen is I see these things that I'm very interested in, and then I go look at my email, and there's another hundred, um, and I just <laughs> I, I just get lost so quickly. Um, but not anymore. Rose keeps the nose to the grindstone pretty well. But you just sent me a uh, a clip that you did. Um, it was actually a presentation, and at one point you covered a very striking thing that all of us who actually quit believing what we're told and go out and observe the moon with decent tools 
uh, even if it's just a pair of binoculars, do that for an extended period of time, you start to realize very quickly what the heck is going on here. Nothing I have ever been told appears to fit what I'm watching. But what I'm referring to is you made the comment, sometimes the moon looks like a disc. Sometimes it looks like a rock. Sometimes it looks like it's rounded off. Sometimes there's shadows. And before I throw it over to you to talk about this a bit, um, Randy from Houston and I, he was the first person with a good scope that I hooked up with online. And my wife and I had been noticing that with my telescope, uh, some nights we would go out and the moon would look three-dimensional and other times it would look utterly flat. And this was in within not even a full 24-hour period. And almost always we were filming when it was near full, so there was not a lot of shadow going on. And it's a hard thing to describe, but another thing we noticed was one portion of the moon kept being out of focus. And when we focused it, the other part of the moon would go out of focus. And so, of course, at first you're thinking, oh, there's something wrong. There's a bad spot on my parabolic mirror in the scope or, or something's going on here. And so I started spinning uh, the camera, spinning the eyepiece, uh, rotating the scope as much as I could. Come to find out, Randy was experiencing the same thing. But that's the tee up, man. The moon is one strange agent, is it not, Dave? I mean, it. every time you look at it, it appears to be something different. Exactly. To me, the, the moon is the most elusive of all the uh, celestial objects in the sky. Like I say, it looks like a light. It looks like a rock. It looks like a sphere sometimes. Sometimes it looks like a disc. It looks like a projection. It looks like a hologram. I've caught it looking like a hologram at times. It looks solid. It looks translucent. It looks hollow. It looks like it emits light. It looks like it reflects light. The moon does so many different things at so many different times. It's just so difficult to actually understand what the moon actually is and i've been asking this question to myself now for over four years and I'm, <laughs> and i'm probably still no wiser now you know what i mean we've been looking at the moon for thousands and thousands of years yeah and we're just no wiser of what the moon is yeah what it's for and what its purpose is we just don't know you know what i mean it's just such an elusive object I, I have some ideas about this, but they are so kind of offbeat and disturbing <laughs> as to need way more proof. And the problem is, is I have proofs, but they're all plausibly deniable. And you, you see, you know, you constantly see in a movie a death, a flash to the moon, and then a baby is born. You see that endlessly. But let's get back to the point here. You know, I always have a reading list that is taller than I am. Right now, over on my bed, I have five books that I'm trying to plow through. I had had a Zetetic Astronomy on my list for a long time, uh, the, the one by Parallax, which you can correct me. I think that's Robotham, Samuel Robotham. But let's mention two things here. I know you have one of the largest collections of old books that may uh, become hard to find, and a buddy of yours it has PDFs. Um, that's a good thing for people to know who are interested. But let me get back to the point here. I had said all these things about the moon, um, that it creates its own light, that, you know, just all the things people are familiar that I've said. And I had no idea that almost 150 years ago, a book called the Zetetic Astronomy said nearly exactly what I did. The one exception being that he said eclipse, eclipses of the sun are not caused by the moon. But I guess he was not aware of the old Vedic ideas of Ketu and Rahu and the nodes. But you, you want to pick up there, and did I get that right? Is Parallax actually Samuel Robotham? 
Yes, he is. Uh, that's that's his pseudonym, uh, Parallax. Uh, all the old Zetetics had pseudonyms. Uh, Albert Smith, he was called Zetetis. Uh, I, I think uh, William Car- Carpenter was Rectangle. They all use these different pseudonyms. Uh, there's another guy who, who wrote, does the Earth Rotate. His pseudonym was William Edgel. You know what I mean? They, they all use these kind of names what relate to relate to Flat Earth. And yes, Samuel Robotham wrote his book. I do believe he wrote the first edition in 1965. He, he, he brought out some pamphlets before that at an earlier date, I think uh, in the mid-1800s. But uh, there's been three editions of the book. Uh, the last edition was the 1888 edition, uh, which is about 350 pages. And uh, there's, there's so much in that book, you know what I mean? And it's quite an easy book to pick up and read as well. But he has got a great section on the moon. And I, I've used used his book a lot. And I've used a lot of his aesthetic methods to make my own observations. So for me, it's like a little textbook, what I use, to tell you the truth. From my point of view, there's a couple books that I bumped into that should be required reading. And Zetetic Astronomy by so-called Parallax, and people should look up what Parallax means. There's a good reason he used that pseudonym. But my point is, is if for no other reason for the first three pages, where he basically informs the world what is true, we live in the age of theories. We live in a world where all the textbooks will tell you gravity is real, which however you feel about it, you can't say that. Gravity is a theory based on a theory. That's a fact. And so until it becomes a law, in the current vernacular that we use, you cannot teach it as a real thing. You can say, we have these ideas, we suspect this might be, you can say all these things, but you cannot treat it as a fact. And that is the basis of Zetetic Astronomy, isn't it, Dave? These guys do not create theories and then present them unless they're firmly labeled as ideas that are unproven. What they say is firsthand observation and proofs are the only way to acquire knowing. Yep, that's what the word zetetic means. I think it means uh, to observe uh, the Greek uh, verb. I think it's called uh, zetio, to observe. And basically what they've done, all the zetetics, they're, they're basing all their observations on real world observations. There's no no theory involved. I mean, if you look at uh, all the uh, astro- astronomy, it's all based on theory. And uh, interestingly, I don't know if you've read the book King's Dethroned, by Jared Hickson. I have not. Uh, it, no, but it's basically what he does. He he debunks astronomy <laughs> from the time of Hipparchus. He goes right back to Hipparchus, who, who invented uh, triangulation or trigonometry, where he tried to measure the distance to the stars. Now, Hipparchus failed to do this, but what he did, he presumed the stars were infinitely fixed. And from that moment in time, every single theory of astronomy has been built on that problem with astronomy yeah because he presumed they were infinitely fixed so when ptolemy picked it up yeah he still presumed the stars were uh, infinitely fixed when copernicus picked it up from ptolemy he presumed the stars were infinitely fixed so astronomy has been built on one of the biggest blunders in history basically you know what's crazy about uh, the book Zetetic Astronomy by Parallax is, and I don't remember whether it's Copernicus or Newton or both, um, he takes quotes from both of those supposed men that flat out state, everything we've laid down here is a theory and unprovable. At some point, science became all about theories, all about these I think, I guess, 
it might be this and then treating it as if it was something more. And I don't know exactly when that happened, but in that book, I learned that the men who started down this astronomy road literally told the world with quotes that what we've done here is theoretical and it can't be proven. And then at some point, the world picked up those theories that couldn't be proven, acted as if they were true, and ran with it. Um, it's quite a thing. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable. Uh, like I say, I, I do believe that in Copernicus's book, he, he, he made sure that that book wasn't released and, until, until his death. Uh, and in the fir first page of the book, he does claim that, that all, all his observations were based on theory. But he just wanted to give people an alternative view to say yeah you know instead of having uh, the earth at the center you can actually have the same observations with the sun being at the center and the earth rotating around the sun but at that time it was actually a fixed sun and it wasn't till after copernicus that william herschel he was responsible for putting the rest of the solar system in motion yeah but <laughs> what a lot of people don't understand is if you if you look at the history of william herschel he also believed that men lived inside the sun and lived inside the moon so <laughs> you know what i mean he had some he had some wild theories and one of them was obviously putting the rest of the solar system in motion and he's the guy who was responsible for that I guess they left the sun and the moon men out of all those theories that they then picked up and act as if they were fact. Um, it's it's almost to a point where basically the space agencies today, we can demonstrate that everything they have done is theoretical at best. But let's get back to some common sense here. Many years ago, and I've got a clip up on this where I don't even remember the name of it. It's been so long where it finally dawned on me that we're being told the moon is reflecting sunlight. Now, I'd gone at this in a few ways. I now know that that's not correct. The moon probably creates its own light. But like you said, the moon is an enigma wrapped in a mystery at this point. But to get back to the point, we're told it's a ball in space that is reflective enough to be reflecting sunlight, the brightest light we know of called the sun. If you take any reflective ball at any level of reflectivity in this world, you can do an experiment that proves if you reflect light off it, there will be a hot spot in the center of that ball because of its curvature. Um, that is never observable on the moon. And what's more is in a situation like that where you're doing the experiment firsthand to prove what light does on a sphere, um, there's fall off. In other words, you can tell that you're looking at a globular surface from the fall off and the shadowing of the light. These things are not true of the moon. And here's the thing, back all that time ago when I did it, you do these things, you understand that logically they must be true, but then all these people come along to try to introduce doubt that's the whole name of the game now. Try to introduce doubt into what you did. Let me tell you something. When I read Zetetic Astro, I picked it up and burned through it in one night. That's how blown away I was. Um, wow. and there, there it was. There it was right there in front of me. Exactly what I had said. Exactly what I had demonstrated to myself taken from a common sense standpoint. And for me, Dave, the moment I read that, I understood I would never have doubt about that particular thing in my mind again. Um, where are you at? I mean, are, are these common sense observations to you? Yeah, they are. But what, what is interesting as well, if, if you look at the inverse square law, so you take the brightness of the moon from, from Earth, yeah, then you use the inverse square law, uh, yeah, and you look at the moon, how bright it should be from the surface of the moon, given that the, they said the distance of the moon is 200, between 230 and 250,000 miles away. Yeah, you look at the moon landings and it looks like they're on an old, old dusty rock. 
Now you imagine how bright that surface of the moon would be from the moon. It would right. absolutely be blinding, wouldn't it? But all we see, whenever we see any footage from the from the moon, it's always an old dusty rock. You know what I mean? Imagine how bright we see see the moon from Earth, and then you use that inverse square law, which says the moon should be thousands and thousands of times more brighter, and all we see is a dusty old rock. So another thing that struck me is a lot of people have tried to demonstrate that the light from the moon is actually cooling. And I think what probably started that is all the old traditions that were handed down in cultures that basically said things like, let's take a, an indigenous people who are trying to cure fish, as an example, or smoke fish. It was known that if you dried that fish and cured it in the sunlight, no problem. Sun does that perfectly. It was also known and handed down that if you try to cure meat in moonlight, uh, that the quality of the moonlight was described as cool and moist, and it could putrefy your meat. Well, a lot of people I know, Randy from Houston did it. The problem is, is nobody really has the right tools. And in these times, most people can't invest in tools trying to show that the moonlight is cooler. And so in the Zetetic Astronomy book, the cool thing about it is, is they took a telescope, they removed the eyepiece, and they concentrated moonlight, and it's exactly measured by how much, a couple thousand times, I think, uh, and they found that the thermometer, the mercury thermometer, this is not digital, this is actual mercury sealed in glass, did not go up, and in some cases actually went down. Uh, and when I began to see these things, I, I just wonder, how did we get so far from a world that's based in actually knowing something, observing and saying this is true or it's not. I mean, that's an experiment that we could do today, right, Dave? Yeah, and I, and I do believe that Mr. Thrive and Survive has done this experiment on a number of occasions and had, and had results where the actual temperature drops. It's never, ever recorded the temperature going up, ever. Now, if you're concentrating uh, moonlight and it's reflecting sunlight, then surely there would be an increase in temperature. Especially if you, I, I don't know if you use the, the tele, telescope method, because that's that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a, a telephone, a, a telescope, remove the eyepiece, concentrate the moonlight to a point, then use a, a an infrared thermometer to see if I could uh, get a change in temperature. And that that is uh, on my card to do. That is one of the observation experiments that uh, I'm planning to do this year. I've got the equipment for it now. I just need the telescope, but that is definitely on the cards. And like I said, that's been Mr. Thrive's not the only one who's done this. There's been a number. I do believe Bob from Globebusters has done this as well. And nobody I know has ever seen an increase in temperature. Now, if it's reflecting sunlight, then we should see an increase in temperature. A lot of them see no change in temperature. But no change in temperature, yeah, <laughs> that that shows that it's not reflecting sunlight because it would be an increase. I mean, you do it with the sun, and you're gonna you're gonna set whatever you you put in the focal point on on fire. Is there an official answer for why it does that? Why it reacts that way? In the Zetetic astronomy, it's basically just telling you that the sun and moon are a bit like positive and negative. But go ahead, Dave. You may know more. Yeah, well, they, they do. They reckon that the. Uh, it's uh, electric and dielectric, you know what I mean? Like a positive negative energy where the, the, the sun gives warming positive light and the moon gives uh, negative light. And, but, but what is interesting when I was looking at the, making this observation, I noticed that a lot of them always make this observation on a full moon. Now, what you'll need to understand about a full moon is it's always in the opposite hemisphere of the sun. So the moon is always being projected from the winter hemisphere. 
on a full moon. So maybe that could have a factor. You know what I mean? I'm, I don't. I don't know, but it, it's something interesting what I've been looking at because it's always in the winter hemisphere to say. So here's here's what I did back in the day when I started to try to demonstrate because my wife and I were looking through the scope and we were telling each other, what's going on here, man? Uh, we have the same settings on the camera. Everything is identical. Last night when we filmed on a full moon, it looked like this, very 3D or very flat. And tonight it looks like something different. So I actually sent away for this big honking prism. I don't know, it's like four inches long, pretty substantial piece of glass prism. And I set about getting light spectrum on a white piece of paper from the sun and taking pictures of it with my camera. And then I was thinking I went out at night on full moons, but it wasn't quite bright enough. And so I'm thinking, how can I do this? And then it dawned on me. I got a telescope, duh. Um, take, take the eyepiece off the rear cell. Uh, the, just so people know, I use a Schmidt cast grain. There's no lenses unless you have an eyepiece. If you have an eyepiece, that's the only lens. It's just mirrors. And the last mirror is parabolic in the in the rear. So it bounces it and it'll bounce out the hole where the eyepiece should be. And I put the prism there. And that's when I realized, man, we don't know anything about this. And it got so bad that I actually took the prism in the house and I went to all the different kinds of light bulbs. We had the old fluorescence. We had typical incandescent. By that time, we had the new LEDs. And I was taking spectra with this prism. And what I realized is all the light we live by in a house, it's false light. It's what I call false light. There's black lines in the spectra. When you go out to the sun, there's no black lines. But I was so vexed at the similarity in the spectra. Not It's not the same between what I gathered from the moon and what I gathered from the sun. And I was so vexed that I never published the clip. But there's all that, Dave. Yeah, uh, interestingly, I, I had another thought about doing a, a quite an easy experiment. Yeah, with a you know with a solar calculator. Maybe if you take a solar calculator out on a supermoon when it's at its brightest, see if that see if that uh, moonlight can actually power that calculator. That'd be an interesting observation. A very very oh, simple I, one as well. I <laughs> see. You're saying solar, yeah, with the little solar panels on it. Yeah. So. That is a good idea. You know, to think about it, let's think about this. So solar energy, like we have a house in the neighborhood just got built completely solar powered. You would have to imagine that if the moon was reflecting sunlight, that a solar energy company would be calculating the collection of that moonlight when you're near full or something. There's another idea. If that was in fact reflected sunlight, those solar panels should be able to make some use of it. Exactly. Yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a very simple experiment that, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it'd be interesting to see what the results were. So you've done some interesting things lately with laser beams at the Brighton Pier, and I think it's Worthington. Is that the name of the other place? Uh, between Brighton and Worthing. Worthing. So yeah. what I was going to mention is uh, these are kind of watershed moments for people who've never done it. I did it for myself with a honk and telephoto with a doubler over just over 10 miles of water. That's how I learned that the curvature model is not correct. But you're out there doing it with laser beams right at the shore. And you're using, what's funny about it is you're using a calculator online. And as a result of what you published in clips, the evidence that you found shooting lasers, they actually moved the goalpost on the curvature calculator, didn't they? Yeah, they did. People don't 
understand who Dr. John D is. The reason why it's called Dr. John John D is because he's basically a, a science teacher for a private school. He's a very, very well-educated man with a PhD. And also his friend Clive is a structural engineer. So these are just nobodies who, who have just turned up on a, on a, on a, on a pier to, to do an observation. Dr. John's been making these observations for over a year now. Uh, and I got the opportunity to take part in a number of these ob- observations. We went down there a couple of times and the conditions weren't right. Yeah, but uh, the last time we went uh, down in February, me and Roxanne Glem was just setting up on Brighton Pier. And I looked across to Worthing and I could see a green flash switching on and off. So we got in contact with Dr. John and we said, are you testing the laser out? And he says, yeah, we're just testing it out now uh, on, on Worthing Pier. So we knew straight away that the conditions were going to be right for making these observations. So on the Saturday when we made these observations, we knew it was going to be a super low tide. It was going to be one of the lowest tides of the year. So what that enabled us to do, that enabled us to get closer to sea level, we was basically, you know how, how, how quick the tide comes in and out in the UK? It's, it's really, really fast. And we got as close as we can to sea level. We was literally out in, out in where, the, where the ocean should be, really. But obviously, because the tide had gone back, and we, and we set up this observation, what we did, we set the laser height at one metre, which is 3.2 feet, and then we basically, we shone lasers uh, towards each other from opposite piers. I, I don't know if you've seen my presentation, but you see the laser beam I'm, I'm shining across there. People say, wow, that laser's pretty significant. You know what I mean? You, you can see the laser beam shining straight across there. But what is significant is the point where you can see the green dot from the opposite pier. What's the distance that, that you guys are shooting the lasers? We're shooting the lasers uh, across the pier at 9.5 miles. Okay, and and so ha- just just to set the stage, so basically, if you see the clip that Dave is talking about, there's two lasers. There's a red one and there's a green one, and so what that basically means is when you're standing where the green one is shooting from, you see a flat green line of laser beam going. But if you get on the opposite side, over nine miles away, you'll see a point of green light. But let's set the stage here. You're just over nine miles. How far off sea level or the ground are you? It was exactly one meter which is uh, 3.2 feet. Yeah, so what we did, we did it at various heights. We, we, we set the laser at 1 meter, 1.5 meter, and 2 meter, because what we wanted to do, we wanted to get the re- refraction index as well to show that there's no change over the, the heights. And at one time, we actually, when the tide was coming in, we decided to set the laser down to 6 inches it was literally sat on a rock. <laughs> the, the laser was sat on a rock uh, facing us, and we could still see that laser beam over that distance at six inches. What should the fall off have been? Just to, so you could see the little green dot from over nine miles away, six inches above sea level. What should the fall off have been for that distance? The fall off should have been uh, 35.36 feet. So from the horizon line, there should have been a drop of 35 feet. Now we know that uh, Mick West added a little section in his earth curve calculator uh, which calculated the standard refraction in even with the standard refraction in yeah which puts the globe uh, at a radius of uh, 4618 miles which we know it's not that that side the the math they give us it's 3959 miles in radius so what it does it, it makes the observation more difficult to conduct but even with the standard refraction in there were still 28 0.85 0.85 feet of missing curvature and we could clearly see all the laser lasers yeah from both sides of the pier so what we did we completely debunked mick west's metabunk calculator interestingly 
Dr. John D went back and forward with uh, Mick West. And if you look at his calculator now, he's actually added an extra little line in there. And it says, note, not accurate for observations over water very close to the horizon. <laughs> so, so basically, he's saying the lower down you get, the less accurate the observation is. Now, the only way you could make an observation is over water. They tell us that we live on a globe 24,901 miles in circumference, and it would depict that every bit of water should have a slight convexity to it, and over a distance of a mile, there'll be an eight-inch drop. Then on the second mile, it's an it's eight-inch drop where you square the distance. So we, we've got the calculator, and this observation, along with a numerous observations, completely smashed Mick West's uh, calculator. It reminds me of the little boy with his finger in the dike, you know, it doesn't, these guys are going to change the goalpost every time they can, but it doesn't matter. This isn't going away. Anyone who wants to quit believing in theoretical things and nonsensical things can go out and do simple tests. I did it way back. And I think the winter of 2013, uh, the curvature model's not right. It's been proven endlessly. And yet we still have people trying to convince us that it is correct. Well, it's not correct, provably not correct. Firsthand observed, measured by endless people, not correct. I got to ask though, I didn't realize what kind of lasers were you guys using? Most of the lasers I've seen, people have tried to do six to 10 mile shots and the laser's like 12 miles wide at the other end. Those lasers you guys are using are just pencil sized. Yeah, I do believe that they're the three watt lasers but uh, Clive, who's a structural engineer, he actually modified his laser beam to, to reduce the, the, di the, the divergence on it, yeah. Uh, so you still get a lot of divergence, and I'm led to believe that you still, from that distance, if you could see actually see the, the actual uh, beam line, it would it would actually diverge out to quite quite a big, I think it was something like 12 feet, the actual beam over that distance. <laughs> but what is interesting, Lee, they tell us they can point lasers to the moon. They reckon there's a, a reflector on the moon, yeah? <laughs> now, now you imagine the divergence on any laser pointing at the moon 240,000 miles away. It's absolutely ridiculous. I, and when, I, when you work with lasers, you understand that. Well, I got a story about that. We, we, I did a lookup back in the day. There was one place left that did the supposed lunar ranging, and we found a government oversight document, I forget what it was called, that came into this place. They were getting paid something like, I don't know, one hundred or $200,000 a year, I forget now, quite a bit of money to do their lunar ranging. And the document said, we need to unfund this. There is no meaningful science being done here. And I said, well, wait a minute. If they've got a magic laser that can go over a quarter of a million miles and hit a little, you know, three foot by three foot reflector, which apparently gets dusted every morning by the maid that's on the moon. My, my point here is if that were true, that would be meaningful science. It would tell you the exact distance of the moon and a lot of things. But actually what the document said is this needs to be defunding. And, I, and that was so long ago. I wonder if anyone is still doing lunar ranging and being paid by the government. Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, I do believe on not the the last series, but the series before, what Brian Cox did on BBC, he actually went to the the place where they do the uh, laser observation, what they point at, at the reflector on the moon. So yes, the, the, I do believe that they still are doing it because uh, he actually <laughs> did, did it in that episode. But the, I don't think they accounted for the Earth rotation at 1,038 miles per hour and it's traveling at 67,000 miles an hour and the moon's traveling at 3,000 miles an hour around the Earth as well. You know what I mean? So <laughs> how they hit that target, I, I do not know. 
Yeah, they might be able to have their cake, but they're almost done eating it here. Um, defending the, none of this stuff is going away, and and it's kind of, you know, you mentioned some dates for the Zetetic Astronomy book. I, I could have swore, and I only glanced at it once that it was eighteen eighty eight. Does that seem right for the parallax? Yeah, that's the that's the third and final edition. That's the one with uh, over three hundred odd pages. I I've got that edition as well, but the the, the early editions, obviously, he, he added to it over the years. Yeah, but that's the best version to get. That I always recommend people get to the eighteen eighty eight edition. So at first, you know, my my heart sunk a little bit because I thought, oh, almost one hundred and fifty years ago, this guy told the truth, and we came all this time still living in fantasy. And then I realized this is not going away anymore. Too many people have caught on. You know, our our friend David Weiss was, I forget, do you remember the story about South America, Jason? He had calculated, I think it was Brazil, tickets for a Flat Earth conference apparently sold out quicker than like a Rolling Stones concert or something. But he did the calculation and estimated that uh, from ticket sales or what he could deduce or I forget, a news report, that it was 11 million people who understood that the curvature model is incorrect. So yeah, it was a sizable percentage of the population. Right. I think it's safe to say at this point, Dave, that this isn't going away. And the problem is, is that when people who have a reputation have staked their reputation on nonsense, Apparently, they're going to hold on until their fingernails break off, but um, I don't think it's going to be too much longer. I really don't. Um, But of course, that's dependent on the censorship we see. I think a lot of the censorship online we see is trying to stifle these things, but even that really doesn't matter. They could censor everything they want online, and there's still going to be conferences all over the world with people who realize they have not been told the truth. Interesting you should say that because I did an interview with the BBC in regards to the growth of the uh, flat earth community. Uh, based on YouTube recommended videos. Uh, I did that earlier on this year. And the the guy who interviewed me, he actually interviewed the guy who did all the algorithms uh, for YouTube uh, back in the day, you know, when the you, you got recommended the videos. You can imagine like when you clicked on one of your videos, it, it, you probably got recommended a flat earth video. Or if you watched a moon landing video, you'd, you'd get recommended a flat earth video. That's how a lot of people came to flat earth and that's how i came to flat earth myself but you know and and i know as now you you put the word flat earth into youtube google or anything like that and you get a load of nonsense it's it's modern day book burning at its best and like i say i i've got quite a big following on facebook i've been i think i've got something like 1700 followers i've got 20,000 likes in in my flat earth uh, news group i've got uh, over two and a half thousand likes on my Luna page, and the amount of uh, notifications I get now are minimum. And very, very few people see my posts. When I was posting three and a half years ago, I was getting twenty thousand, thirty thousand views on some videos I posted on Facebook. I'm lucky if I get a thousand now. Yeah, and I also had one thousand six hundred members kicked out of my uh, flatline group for being in- inactive. So. It's modern day book burning at its best. And I've seen a a massive decrease in Facebook likes and views. Yeah, it's it's clear um, what's going on. But you see, there's really no way to get out from under this. Like, I use YouTube to post videos. I don't comment um, because I'm not feeding their AI and I'm not wasting time on a thing that might not be there tomorrow. I think at this point they claim I have 150 or 60,000 followers. People in the know who I know, uh, some of them used to work doing exactly what you were talking about for these inside jobs, said that if you multiplied that by 10, 
you would probably be much closer to an actual, uh, you know, stat of how many people are aware, have seen you, have followed you. But here's the thing. If they took out my channel, which they, who knows, who knows what they will do. Every person, all those hundreds, thousands and thousands of people would understand that your channel was deleted. And that tells every one of those minds what's going on here. Because the first time they did it to me, they accused me of hate speech. And I almost actually truthfully got a lawyer because I don't engage in hate speech. And that's some pretty serious claims to make against a living man. And I, I go ahead, look through every ounce of content I've ever made. You will not find a drop of hate speech because I don't hate people. It's that simple. And when they did that, that was the excuse they used. Well, of course, my channel came back roughly three weeks later. And at that point, what we noticed was before they did the big censorship move uh, with uh, with 100,000 followers, admitted 100,000, probably 10 times that. If you searched my name, there were 16 to 20 million returns. The day they put my YouTube channel back, there were 6,000 returns. So that's what they're engaged in. Anytime you see a channel or any presence in social media deleted um, and then come back, what they've done is they scrubbed you. There is now an algorithm. So uh, we were watching a big channel and all these people were saying, I'm searching for Crow 777 and I can't find them. <laughs> How's that even possible? My point being is that even with all this nonsensical censorship, which is in fact a version of book burning, it's indefensible. And I don't give a damn who thinks otherwise, because all us human minds out here in the world with common sense, we understand it's a book burning and it's indefensible. Um, this is not going away. The problem here is, is do humans have a right to go out and observe the world they live in and try to understand where it, where it is exists? But there's another point of your research, which I became very interested in. You have measured uh, the moon at Zenith. And from my point of view, what you discovered is that every night when the moon is at zenith, it is provably the closest to you. Yes, that, that's true. And I've made this observation on a number of times. Uh, basically, how, how I come across this first is uh, uh, I was uh, looking into the super uh, the moon illusion. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm sure you've noticed when the moon rises that the moon looks absolutely huge on yep. the horizon. Yeah. Well, I bought a few books on the, the moon illusion and funny enough, nobody's ever solved the mystery of the moon illusion. And you can go back right back to Aristotle. Uh, Ptolemy tried to solve the mystery of the moon illusion. Even da Vinci had a go at cracking this one. And not one, not one person can answer the question to the moon illusion, why the moon appears bigger than it does. Now, I know a lot of these people in the past have been looking at the moon from a geocentric perspective or a heliocentric perspective. This is where I think you need to start looking at the moon from a supernatural perspective. Because like we've mentioned before, the moon, it can be so many different things at so many times. So, so what I did, I, I measured the moon when it was uh, on the horizon. And I used a specialized uh, measuring tool called Bearsoft Measuring. And basically, you can measure anything with this. You can measure the circumference of the moon. You can measure the radius. You can even, if you pump in the formulas, you can measure streets uh, on on over on overhead street maps. You know what I mean? It's very very accurate software, and uh, and I've been using it for about two years now. So what I did when the moon was on the horizon, I, I basically measured the actual circumference of the moon. But what I did, I measured it in the width of the the moon in pixels and the height of the moon in pixels. Now, when it was when it was on the horizon, the width of the moon was 2,011 pixels, 
and the height was 1860 pixels. Then what I did, I waited till the moon reached my zenith and I measured it again. And funny enough, even though that moon looked tiny in open space, it actually measured bigger. It actually measured uh, the width of the moon was uh, 2048 pixels and the height of the moon was 2051 pixels. And when when you see the images side by side, you can see there's 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 a quite a big difference in size of the moon. So what what is interesting as well, according to the heliocentric model, between the moon rising and the moon reaching zenith, according to the heliocentric model, the moon was actually heading to its furthest point <laughs> at apogee in the cycle, yeah? Not only that, between rising and being at zenith, it had waned 0.3% as well. So it should have actually measured smaller, yeah? But it was actually 700 miles further away between rising and zenith, and it actually measured bigger. Now, I've made this observation on a number of occasions. Uh, I've, I've done quite a few uh, posts, one, one called Moonrise to Zenith, one called Moonrise to Zenith and Beyond. So what I did, I measured the moon when it rised, and I me measured it every hour on the hour until it reached zenith, and it increases in size every time. Then on my Moonrise to Zenith and Beyond, I did, I, I did the same observation again, but this time uh, I got up to 5 a.m. in the morning and caught the setting moon as well, and it got smaller. So as the moon approaches zenith, it gets bigger and quite a significant change in size as well. I know we're talking uh, pixels here, but it's still measurably bigger. Yeah, and it happens every single time. Now, for me, if the moon was 240,000 miles away, you shouldn't hardly see any change in angular size whatsoever. But every observation I've made of the moon, there is a measurable difference in size. It always looks bigger on the horizon but measures smaller and looks tiny as zenith, but measures bigger. So it proves to me that the moon's not 240,000 miles away in outer space. Well, the true laws of perspective, um, and I say the true laws because I suspect that even some artistic colleges um, are teaching maybe a different version of perspective to get a look in a thing than actually is observable in the world, which is also proved out in Zetetic Astronomy. David, one of the proofs you'll see if you look up on a solar-centric model of the world, or basically the NASA model, is that one of the proofs that the world is spinning and curved is that when a boat goes over the horizon, the last thing you see is the mast. And I can't imagine that it, this relies on the ignorance of people. And I don't mean that the people are ignorant. I mean that the people were not taught what they should have been taught in school. Because the laws of perspective prove outright why you see the mast last. It's just perspective. Let's get into that real real quickly. We've got a few minutes before we go. But once these are laws, by the way, the laws of perspective. These are not arguable things. And yet we see places that have the gall to say, well, we can prove it's going over the horizon because the last thing you see is the mast. Let's, let's debunk this real quick for anyone who actually wants to know a true thing about the world. So the true law of perspective, we know that if, if I've got an object in my hand, say I've got, I've got uh, a balloon and, and I carry this object further and further away from you, the natural laws of perspective will show that the object converges to a datum point or a center point. So everything around the object converges to a point. That is the basic law of perspective. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen when a car drives away from you or when somebody's walking away from you, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. But when you look at perspective 
over the sea, something different happens. If you watch a bo- boat sailing away from you, the actual ocean becomes the datum line. Or, or the so ground. It, Let, let's make this the, clear. All, yeah, or the a, ground. So if you're yeah. on the ground or the ocean, the actual datum point becomes the ground, and it's common sense, and it can be proved. Go ahead. Exactly. So when that object moves away from the then, everything converges to the datum line. So when you see a ship sailing over and you see it disappearing whole first, then you know that it's actually converging to the actual datum line. And if you use uh, a telescope or uh, a P-1000 like I've got, you watch that ship sail away and disappear with the naked eye, you get that camera out and zoom it back in, it's still there. You know what I mean? There will be a point eventually when it will disappear due to the natural laws of perspective. Yeah, but this is one of the biggest proofs of uh, the globe, yeah, that boats sail away. But I-, I believe that some people are being very deceptive about this, yeah. For example, Red Rhetoric. I know for a fact that he knows how the true law of perspective works. But what he'll do, keep doing, he'll keep showing you these videos with boats disappearing. And you- you've got to take in consideration as well that the water is undulating. It's constantly moving, yeah. You- you've got currents, you've got undercurrents, you've got the... Uh, the waves. So what this does, it causes a buildup over a distance. So that's what actually cuts the bottom off of the boat as well. You've got to take into consideration the actual undulation of the water, or if you're in a field and you've got the high grass blowing or whatever, you have to take these things into uh, perspective. But for me personally, if you're going to make any observations, they, they need to be made over the ocean because it's very difficult to make them over land because you've got valleys, you've got mountains, you've got hills and what have you. So the perfect place to Sea perspective is at sea. And just to put a fine point on it, Zetetic Astronomy by Parallax uh, does all the graphing to show that is provably true perspective. Um, there's really no argument. And besides, even if, even if it wasn't true and you use other ways to do perspective, the other true thing is, is, is the hull of a boat as tall as the math? No. So the smallest thing is going to disappear first. But we know certainly that the datum point when a thing like railroad tracks is one of the examples used, that's on the ground. The datum point becomes the ground. It is undeniably true. And it doesn't matter what other people, you know, I don't spend time arguing or, or naming who said this. Or it, it doesn't matter. What's true is true. And you can't make a true thing a lie. You can try to cover it up. But eventually, as the Buddha once said, three things cannot long be hidden, the sun, the moon and the truth. I hope we live long enough, Dave, you and I, to actually know something true about the moon because I'm with you. It is almost supernatural. It's almost at times spooky when you spend years observing the moon. You realize that, you know, when you hear old songs on the radio like Lunatic Fringe, you know what Lunatic is? It's a group of people who aren't quite straight in the mind named for the moon. And that begins to illustrate exactly what we're talking about. Anyhow, you want to get in on this, Jason, before we get to the top? Well, you guys have gone through a lot of the more common discussions on this. Are there any mainstream arguments to disprove any of this since we're in hour one and a lot of folks can be hearing this? Perhaps we should try and see if there's anything we can compare and contrast to what mainstream science says as far as, no, this is the way this actually works. You're getting this wrong. Is there anything that if you were debating a, a mainstream, say, professor of astronomy or something like that, that you guys would win the argument. Do you follow that, Dave? Yeah. The, what's interesting, though, is when, you, when you're debating astronomers or, or, or physicists, what they want to do to, pro- to prove uh, the Earth's not flat, they want you to look up. Yeah? They want you to look <laughs> up to the, to the skies. They want you to look at say, oh, look, 
the, the moon's round. Oh, look, Jupiter's round. Oh, look, Venus is round. Yeah, they want you to look up to prove that the ground is flat beneath your feet when we know that the only way you're going to measure the Earth is measure what's beneath your feet. Yeah, so they'll, they'll always have you looking up. Yeah, for an analogy, when the carpet fitter comes to lay your carpet, yeah, imagine if he if started getting on his ladders and uh, measuring your light fittings, you'd be like, what the hell's he doing? You know what I mean? It's uh, If you want to measure uh, what's beneath your feet, you need to measure what's beneath your feet and not look up and start comparing it to stars or planets or the sun and moon. There are so many evidences that have just been made a mockery of on like the evening news. It reminds me of the old Bugs Bunny. Oh, it's a mirage. You know, <laughs> Bugs Bunny saying, it's a mirage. Here's the true story. I was in the Upper Peninsula on Lake Michigan with my father when I was about eight years old. And I looked out with my keen little child eyes and there was a huge freighter and there was another huge freighter upside down above it. And the smokestacks were connecting them. And my father was a professor. And I said, Dad, look what's going on. There's an upside down boat out there. So he sat down. And he said, son, that's called a superior mirage. And he sat down and he explained the whole thing to me. And I never forgot that. Then we got that shot of Joshua Newick's shot of Chicago. Yeah, it was Chicago. And so, of course, they trotted that out on the evening news to take advantage of the ignorance of most people who are not ignorant, but were simply never taught the correct things when they were in school. And they said, you're looking at a, well, first they said it was a superior mirage. Then they later changed it to, it's just a mirage to use Bugs Bunny's vernacular. And actually a superior mirage, what you see is the object itself, which may start to be washed out or blurred out in some way, but an exact replica flipped upside down. That is a superior mirage. I've witnessed it on more than one occasion because after that first time as a child, there were other occasions because we were we were a boating family. We sailed, we did these things. There were a number of times when I saw similar versions of that and they just bald face it, man. They show it and they tell you it's a superior mirage when they got called out on that because it will always be upside down uh, by the definition of a superior mirage. Then they just start calling it a mirage like Bugs Bunny. But it never ends. Yeah, so so what they're telling us basically, we can't really see that Chicago skyline from uh, 57 miles away. It's magically rising up from behind the curve. You know, yep. What's the most, most likely is, yeah, that the water's flat and level yeah, the natural physics of water is to find its level. And you know what I mean? And you, you're looking across there because you're looking across a, a flat surface. One of the things that bothers me the most about this and why uh, I made my observations, joined no groups, became a part of nothing, kept to myself other than to put my observations out, is because it's like the old, you know, early on on, on the Internet, there was a uh, an insider baseball kind of psyop going on where everyone been convinced that that person you don't agree with, he's the opposition. That's a psychological operation. And like lemmings to the damn cliff, everybody and their brother latched onto this ridiculous idea that somehow every human being you bump into is so different than you are. But in that, the flat earth thing came to be about 30 days after the lunar wave, the first lunar wave was posted. And I was as stunned as anyone. I did at first, I did not know what to make of it, which is why I went out and did my long shot across water to understand some true things. But what happened next was it was the same thing. Oh, you're a flathead. Oh, you're a globe tard. And this culture 
was fostered on the social media platforms to get people to fight. And it was the most one of the most successful, unhelpful things I've ever seen. So just in the face of all that nonsense, I will ask a simple question. Does a human being have the right, the birthright in this world to understand where it is they exist? Does a human being have the right to go out and make observations and try to logically prove or logically deduce where they exist? And if you answer no to that, then you're welcome to go out and fight online as if you were in seventh grade. But if like an adult human being, you realize that yes, everyone has that right, then maybe things will start to change. But this has been, you know, when the internet first came to be, it literally was like this wild west of ideas, just sharing and all this going on. And it did not take very long for us to come to where we are now, where all information will be controlled. But I don't know where you're at, Dave, in my mind, this is not going away. This is one that cannot be stuffed back in the bag. No, it's it's like a snowball and it's gathering momentum and it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. And I haven't mentioned this to many people, but in January, I will be on a show in the UK called Tattoo Fixers. I don't know if you've heard about it. Basically, what you do is say if you go to uh, Ibiza and you have uh, a silly tattoo when you're drunk, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, you have something really ridiculous on your back. What you do, you 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 apply to the show and they'll give you a cover-up tattoo. Now, I got contacted by the Tattoo Fixer production team, asked me if I was willing to have a tattoo based on my Flat Earth Awakening. So I'm always looking for ways to spread the truth. I know that social media is just about dead. So I'm, I'm, I'm aiming, aiming I now and looking at mainstream. And my episode of Tattoo Fixer will be aired. And it normally has an audience of about a million viewers a week on uh, E4 in the UK. So it's going to be aired in uh, January. So you'll see me on the uh, TV show Tattoo Fixers because I'm always looking to try and push the truth. You know what I mean? Further, we need to we need to take it out of the bedrooms and the living rooms, yeah, the, the keyboard warriors, and take it to mainstream. And that's what I'm doing. Well, I, I got to hand it to you, but we are about to the top of the hour here, so we're going to wrap up. Uh, when we come back an hour or two, we're going to get into all kinds of things, talk a little bit more freely, which is always the case. Um, the truth is this. Um, these theoretical or outright non-truths that have been inserted all over, they've come under challenge now, and enough minds have woken up, and all the little infighting and all the other censorship they try to do to put these things back, it's not going away anymore. Too many people are aware, and what this means is once you understand where it is you exist, then you start to understand where you can go from here. But I'll ask a simple question in the closing of the first hour for episode 190. Is it possible knowing what we know now, that there are land masses that we are totally unaware of. Anyhow, join us for hour two of episode 190 with Dave Marsh and Jason Lindgren in the free speech zone, where we will take full advantage of the fact that we are free human beings and we will express our ideas freely. Hope you join us over at crow777radio.com. Cheers. Mm-hmm.